Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Kevin Hale. Kevin is a partner at YC. Before working at YC, he co-founded Wufu. Kevin's on the podcast today to do some office hours and talk about this year's edition of Startup School. If you'd like to learn more or sign up, check out startupschool.org. I'll also link it up in the description. All right, here we go. Kevin Hale, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Craig. You are running Startup School this year. Uh, me and Adora okay. are um, hosting and the main instructors for Startup School. So many people know about Startup School. We've talked about it on the podcast before. What's different in 2019? Uh, 2019 is a reaction to all the stuff that we learned from 2018. And so um, I'm going to talk about some stats. So last year we had over 15,000 people uh, register and participate in startup school. And we had about 5,000 graduate. Um, from that graduating class, um, we had about 391 of them end up getting interviewed for the last batch. And then we accepted uh, over 60 companies. It represented 30% of the batch. So startup school now represents the single largest source of um companies that have are accepted into a YC batch, which is super exciting mm -hmm. because the founders in startup school are so different than what I think a lot of people think uh, a YC company is. So more numbers to throw at you. 83% mm -hmm. um, of people who started doing startup school, they were pre-launch. So no traction whatsoever. 52% were working full-time. So the other 48% was only part-time. 63% uh, were single founders, which was very surprising to us. Mm -hmm. It was not so many teams. And then 59% were international. And so for us, I wanted to make a new version of Startup School that was going to be a better fit for all those different groups of people because I felt like the last one probably um, wasn't a perfect fit. Mm -hmm. And so we shifted the content so it's more focused on helping you understand ideas uh, evaluating them the way an investor would sort of think about them. So that way, if you are spending time on a startup part-time or um, you're by yourself or you're trying to figure out like how to, what to build an MVP for, you have the tools necessary and you have the things that we help our companies do mm -hmm. to evaluate, for example, a pivot um, or evaluate like which of the ideas is worth spending time on. The other thing we did was um, for all these single founders, we realized it's like, holy crap, it's like over 6,000 people who were like all trying to do a startup. Yeah. And we constantly tell people like finding a co-founder is the best thing you can do for a startup. And so we're like, why don't we just help them do that? Mm -hmm. um, and this is super important for us because like we're finding increasingly teams are being created and other people are asking for equity to help them find co-founders. Other people meaning other investors, other, other investors, programs. incubators, programs, etc. And for us, we actually feel like the only people you should be giving equity equity to for a co-founder is two other co-founders. Yeah. So we're going to make that free. We're building a directory. We're allowing you to state that you are looking for a co-founder. And then the group um, sessions that you'll do during startup school, you'll be matched up with other single founders meeting. So you'll get to meet, talk, um, and again, we don't expect that you're going to solidify a team during startup school, but you at least will start introductions and um, start building that relationship, which is needed to mm -hmm. figure out if you're going to be a good fit or not. And we're really, really excited about that because we think that's like one of the best things we can do to help all these single founders. Mm -hmm. And the last one is for all these international people, um, 
last year we did the tapings uh, weekly at our office and we invited people to come and attend um, mm -hmm. the live tapings. People were flying from all over the world. It was incredibly po uh, popular, but we felt really guilty because it was like, that's a waste of money and time, we think, for people to come for a one-hour session with partners. We are humbled that people find think that that's worth it and valuable. Yeah. Part of what we're going to do is uh, we looked at the data for what are the top 18 cities that people attended or participated in startup school, and we're going to go out there. So we're going to record some lectures, and we're going to host startup school meetups. Partners are going to be in attendance. You can ask and meet with them one-on-one, um, -on -one, and it's going to be at 18 different cities. And it's going to be, I think, super exciting that these people are, well, one, kind of get to interact with us, and we get to interact with them, which I think is always energizing for us. But the second thing is like, startup school creates structure and community. And I think when you're meeting other people who are going through the same thing, um, from the very first startup school, when it was just like a mini conference, everyone was always excited about the energy of being in a room with other people right. who, who are having a shared experience or a shared ambition. And so I, I want to give that opportunity as many people as possible, not just the ones who can make it to San Francisco. Well, in addition to that, the online community allows you to meet people near you as well. So like when you're finding a co-founder, for instance. Yes, definitely. Actually, we have a fairly sophisticated uh, matching program for the group session. So you're matched with people based on your time zone, uh, your level of progress, um, your sort of preferences that you put into the software, et cetera. So Kyle Corbett, he's the uh, person from the software team working on startup school software, mm -hmm. did an awesome job basically uh, looking through the d data, doing a regression test, and just proving that we're going to have a really good like group session. Uh, that other thing that we're doing is um, we, we initially had it for last year. It was like, you got into a group with like 20 other startups mm -hmm. and you've followed them all the way through. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, a lot of people just drop off <laughs> over time. And so those aren't people you can count on. So yeah. what we've changed instead is that you're always going to be matched up with people who are actively participating in startup school. And that's just determined so on- So your group's going to change a little bit. Your group is going to change every week, actually. You'll meet more people, mm -hmm. get more people to build into your network, um, get more advice, uh, but also, like, you're always going to be matched up with people who are serious about this, yeah. which I think is also going to improve uh, the quality of the program for people. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Um, and just to clarify for people listening and watching, uh, we always put all this content on YouTube. It's not paywalled. It's not behind anything. Absolutely. Yeah. So we believe, and the thing is, like, I actually think the lectures are the least important part of startup school. Like, it's a one thing that, like, it brings a lot of attention. It helps builds up the brand. Um but those lectures are a way for people to understand and like get help, you know, if they can't commit to a 10 week program. But if you have the ambition and passion and, and a desire, the 10 week structure in terms of how we set up group discussions, the assignments, uh, the way we hold you accountable by putting in like a weekly updates into our software, all of that is actually the most powerful thing that can um, help your startup. And so, again, we're happy to give away all the lectures for free. It's something that we've always done yeah, uh, yeah. for YC. And so this other part is the part that we're trying to figure out how to scale. And the lectures are going to be a little bit shorter this year. Now they're about 20 minutes. We're, we're kind of taking a cue from what's popular from this YouTube generation. Yes. And so I think... Um, you, you can watch, like people just drop off on the hour long sort of lectures. Yeah. Some people who are serious, they kind of really love it. What we want to make sure is that like, you're going to spend 20 minutes and it's going to be the highest quality 20 minutes that you're going to get. Um, we're also 
I've given instructions to all the people doing lectures that were focused more on practical, tactical uh, information, and then try to back up stuff with as much case studies as possible. So therefore, it would always just feel like I'm watching, I'm watching a lecture, and then I'm, you're not going to feel like I don't know how to apply this to my totally. company. Yep. And so I think that'll be a, a really nice difference. Because some lectures, I, I felt like for companies who were really early, they're just like, I'm so far away from even thinking about this stuff. Yeah. And so like, to me, it's like, okay, great. We have room to like make a lot of great content to help people with first principles. Right. It's inspiring, but not always relevant. Yes. Like those are the ones you go back to once you like you have things yeah. going well on the ground. And I think we have enough of that inspirational content and there's probably enough of it being created by lots of other people. Everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And so just to be clear, signups are open right now. When are they open until? They're open until July 22nd. Um, so pretty much right up until it starts on that day is when I release a video like on orientation. And then the first lecture is recorded on the 25th. Um, and then we release that live to the public uh, the next day on Thursday. So yeah. on the 26th. Yeah. Right. Cool. So let's get to some uh, relevant and important advice. Okay. Uh, we have a bunch of office hours questions for you. Um, Great. Many of them, I think, for whatever reason, maybe it's the mood, the startup school announcement, are about the early days. So we of have- my startup. Both of your startup and just startups in general, starting okay, a product. Um, so let's start with the, this very simple question. Um, in the early days of Wufu, how did you give a great customer experience? Like the basic beginning days. So it's actually relatively easy to provide a good customer experience. Like I think the default is people expect to not get a response, that it's going to be a really slow response, and the response that I'm going to get is not relevant. Mm -hmm. So those are the three ways that you can really sort of fix this. One is make sure you respond to every single person that has a question or problem issue. Second, we responded on average uh, seven to 12 minutes. <laughs> um, and then the third one is the person that's responding to your question uh, is most likely probably was going to be someone that uh, worked on the software, is a, was an engineer. Yeah. And so in the early days of Wufi, it was like the founders. We were answering all customer support for the first two years. Um, and we just got really disciplined and, and diligent. We said like this was going to be a number one priority mm -hmm. for us, um, that if people are taking a chance on us, that we they deserve the respect of like getting a good response. And, and, and we want to get that feedback. And so... Uh, that made a huge difference. One is that the people building the product like got all this awesome feedback on like how to improve it. You also have the right sort of feedback loop where it's just like, oh, I'm tired of getting this question for yeah, like exactly. the 15th time. I have to do something about it. And the result also is that um, we started doing a lot of stuff to help people help themselves. And so I would say Bufu in the early days had some of the best documentation, screencasts, tutorials, help tips. Um, and then we also got very diligent about like and passionate about building really simple, uh, intuitive interfaces. And that meant, actually, it was really hard to add features to Wufu. It was really hard to, like, add a button or a piece of copy, et cetera, because we just knew that, like, oh, that results in extra customer support yeah. or complexity. And so how can we do this with smart defaults or ways that we do this so that, like, we do it with as few different controls or manipulations as possible? And the result is a software that just kind of, like, mostly just works right out of the gate for you. Mm -hmm kind of is doing what you want by default, uh, if possible. And then anything that we felt like was not worth that trade-off, we would say like, hey, you have to go somewhere else for that kind of complexity. Because eventually people would graduate and we would know where we are in terms of like 
the life cycle of like people's form needs. Like at some point you need to get a developer and build your own app. Like you need, if you need something really complicated. Yeah. And I, I like that part about your talk recently when you were describing how Photoshop was putting the stroke in red and that was prompting users to learn the settings and you did something similar in Wufu. Uh, yeah. So in that case, uh, uh, I, I, do this talk to the batch about affordances. And so I talk about like basically there's an affordance of something really ugly, especially in a design app or a photography app like Adobe Photoshop. And so when you put a border on something, the default was like this three pixel dark red line. And the affordance of that is like designers want to change it. They'll do whatever it takes to change (laughs) that uh, default. And what it does is it naturally gets them to learn how to use the settings and find the properties, et cetera. And they don't even know they're doing it. Like they're being kind of annoyed about this one thing, but they're actually learning all the skills and all the things that will help them change all the other settings in Photoshop, which I think is really brilliant, intuitive thing. And so for us in Wufu, we tried to do that in a lot of other places. And a lot of that had to do with like helping discover certain functions or um, features that would be hidden behind tabs that were unnatural to mm-hmm. sort of find or to think about. And what we would do is we we would call things, we would call like the, the default form untitled form. No one would want to like have their form called that. So they default, like naturally wanted to click on that. And as a result, it, it revealed all these extra settings that were kind of like candies. Exactly. As a result. And they don't even realize that they were learning something. So to me, I always like that interface that like teaches people without them realizing they're being taught. I don't think there's many people who like, sign up for a new piece of software and they get tossed into a walkthrough tutorial and they're like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm all about the wizard. I don't know what you're talking about. I think <laughs> the people who are the best at this are video games. Yeah. They do a phenomenal job and the people who are worse at this is like B2B enterprise software. Like yeah. I think they don't realize like how important it is to get that storytelling and that natural feeling right. Mm-hmm. They just think like, oh, I just see someone else has this force walkthrough we should just do this as well. Not realizing it's like the mindset of your user is like panicked, trying to evaluate is this like something that's going to solve my immediate problem. And so it's like, is not going to put up with any weird forced bullshit yeah, to exactly. like walk through your maze. Yeah. Or that's part of your business model, offering expensive trainings. Yeah. Uh, so in the very early days of Wufu, th- there's a question from uh, Sunil Tej. They asked, how is Wufu 10X better than the market when you just got started? One of those, response time on customer support, what were the other ways? So I wouldn't call that a 10x improvement. Like that's probably, it's like, oh, that's a good improvement. But okay. I don't know if anyone was like, oh, I want to switch for great customer. That's Great customer support is actually a good one for improving retention. And it's something I also tell people about in terms of like, that's a great like user experience. And most user experience features, like a lot of people like to be forward on them, especially designers. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's really beautiful. It's really easy to use, intuitive. And the problem is those words are the words that like no other competitor or no other company will ever say the opposite of. And therefore, when you use it, it means nothing. Yep. So they only help with retention. So as far as conversion is, is concerned, um, when we built Wufu, it was in like 2006. And that is the era where like Gmail just kind of came out. Mm-hmm. And so it is a world where Ajax was brand new and then the idea of building a modern web app that felt kind of like a desktop came into being. And so all the other form builders at the time was literally, it was like a page refresh for every change you want to make. And so it made that process of creating a form really, really difficult. So one thing is like, we 
change the level of responsiveness so that you could build a form really quickly. The other thing we did on top of that was build an interface that was like simple drag and drop. Like it was, it was WYSIWYG like. So other people, it's like a form board builder is a really interesting user interface challenge because mm-hmm. it's an interface that builds interfaces. So there's all this weird kind of complexity. So you have to kind of show what is the difference between like my interface, the tool that's helping you build, and the interface I'm trying to actually create. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the aesthetic weirdness of Wufu had to do with like this, all this crazy colorful stuff, this is Wufu land. And then stuff that you're building, that's probably this drab gray and yeah. white form. Like yeah. it was really easy to distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. And so being able to drag and drop and be like, hey, what you know you want as a non-technical person is like, I need to collect the name, email address, a bunch of questions, et cetera. Like you know what you're looking for. You, mm-hmm. You've seen other people do it and you want to copy what you've seen. A lot of other... Apps at the time had this different kinds of approaches. One of them was like, hey, we're a database application builder. And so they would start with being like, what's well, just the structured data that you need? Right. Tell me how to all this stuff. And so what ended up happening is like you had to know too much about development uh, to build the forms instead of being like, hey, I just need to copy what I want. And can you just magically make it work? And so that magic was the big thing that was changed. And when we started Wufu, we were able to prove that it was going to feel that fast mm-hmm. uh, by releasing actually an interface demo. So the very first thing that we launched, so I think we got into YC for winter 2006. We wrote the first lines of code in January of that year. We launched an interface demo uh, in early February. Meaning a video, screen recording. No, no, no. It was like an interactive. Okay. So what you all you could do was like drag and drop the fields that you want and then pretend like you're going to hit save. Like it looked like you were changing all the settings for it and then you hit save and what it came up it prompted was just like, hey, you just completed the interface demo for <laughs> Wufu. If you're interested in like using, you know, using this builder for other forms in the future, sign up. Okay. We got over 100,000 people who went through that demo and gave us emails in that interface prototype. Okay. Basically, it showed people kind of like Dropbox's like video demo. Yep. It was like, oh, this is what it should feel like. I get this it. is yeah. what it should look like. And so by making it so it was like no signups to the feel what the change was going to be, like for us, that like helped people be like, oh, I can imagine myself using this or I can imagine myself giving this to someone else and that they could use it. Yes. And not have me build this really tedious thing, which is a form. Where were you distributing that at the time? We had started a blog. So okay. when we first got started in entrepreneurship, we realized we do nothing. Yeah, sure. And uh, we had attended a talk at South by Southwest by Jason Freed. It's called Doing Big Things with Small Teams. And they mentioned at um, 37 Signals that they were blogging for years before they finally released Basecamp, their first product. And so they had an audience of huge, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who followed them um, before they launched. And so when they got started, they were not starting from zero. Mm-hmm. And they, their piece of advice they had was like, build an audience first. And we're like, well, we don't have an audience and we don't have a product. So let's, you know, start doing that. Yeah. So that night we registered a domain called particletree.com. And then we just started writing about stuff that we didn't know anything about. Like literally we would research stuff about entrepreneurship, about design and about business. Like the three things we were like, this is what we're going to need to know to right. like start a startup, like a technical startup. And so we would research the stuff and we'd write these beautiful essays. It was something like part of my expertise. I knew like I studied modern American literature. Uh, I was editor of my newspaper. And I was like, I know publishing. I know how we can write this stuff so that it's clear for people. Yes. Um, and so that's how it got started. And we build that readership to 100,000 subscribers. This was like the heyday of like Delicious and Slashdot. And so like good content got spread around pretty easily. And it's actually uh, 
Paul Graham had recognized us from our blog. Hmm. And that's why I think we got in. That was like our proof that we got stuff done. Right. You can at least make something someone wants. Maybe it's an essay. So we've been writing on that blog for multiple years, about two years. And so when we launched this prototype, we launched it on the blog. It's like, hey, we've we've taken all these skills and we're starting to build a company. We're building this product. Come check it out. So we had all these readers who were developers and other entrepreneurs who were actually our ideal customers coming in to try a thing. And number one, they were not starting, it was not like they were coming in and be like, I'm evaluating and I don't know if I trust this company or whatever. They're like, these guys have been writing and been generous for multiple years. I already trust them. I'm excited about using this thing that they've been so generous about. Okay. So that changed the relationship, but also allowed us to like out of the gate, yes, be able to start ahead of the curve that other people like wait until they finally build a product. Right, first. or at that time, like launch in TechCrunch or something. Right, so you you create that early pop. Did you guys have any interesting referral mechanisms, or were you just word of mouth? Um, so when we finally launched, uh, Wufu, as, by its very nature, could spread itself. So what we had is on we had a freemium product, and on the free plan, um, on the confirmation page, it would say it was powered by Wufu. So we just had, like, naturally, like, as people created forums and shared it with other people on our behalf, they would see, oh, great. The second thing is we built this innovation is allow forms to be ended, embedded on other people's websites. So that was, like, a new thing. Hmm. Like, people would embed weird chat widgets and other images and galleries and stuff. But embedding a form was unique. Hmm. And so we had signed it so that Wufu forms could be embedded. So you could, you know, you don't redirect them. You put them on your own website. What it meant was like a Wufu form that says powered by Wufu was put on all these different websites as well. Okay. And would link also back to us. Okay. So upon completion, it does an Ajax well, reload you, in the page and yeah. then you see the logo. Well, you would see on the confirmation page, but also on the free plan, if you embed it, you would see that this form was created okay. with Wufu. Gotcha. So both of those things would mean that like our users were spreading the gospel on our behalf. And that sort of helped. Uh, secondly, confirmation emails also had it, et cetera. So there's all these like nice mechanisms yeah. that allowed that to sort of work. Um, we had the reputation from the blog and then we had really great word of mouth as a result. Yeah. Like the product just worked really well. People like were satisfied with customer support to help them deal with whatever sort of weird features. And um, I think it was... The design of it, because it was so strange, like uh, it's a very casual app for something that's meant for like a lot of business and like yeah, workflow logics stuff. That's true. It's like red and yellow. It's like McDonald's colors. The mascot's a weird T-Rex. Yeah. It has all this weird kind of like things that um, if you look at MailChimp software that you will recognize that is cute and witty, et cetera. It was a personality of an app that you're like, oh, I would like to be friends with whoever made yeah. this. <laughs> but what it did was it made people smile when they use it and it was easy to remember to recommend it to other people. It's like, hey, here's an app that actually don't doesn't make me want to kill myself, remind me that I'm working in a cubicle. Right. Um, unlike all the other apps Especially that said at the time. time, which was all yeah. gray and blue, very boring and kind of dull. Yeah. Those little things that show that there's actually a human behind the screen go so far, especially in the early days. Uh definitely. I think definitely for sticking out. Yeah. Because if someone's evaluating a bunch of different tools then it's like, oh, what are you going to do to stick out? And so if everyone's comparing you against a checklist of stuff, man, there's going to be like, it's going to be hard to be like if they're only maximizing this stuff. And so in the early days, we didn't have a checklist of all the things no. we can have. So we had to rely on, one, this extreme ease of use 
and then also this friendliness. Mm-hmm. Like it's like, oh, I'm here. And then while there's a lack of jargon and the help kind of talks to me in a way that's very human rather than in a way that like it's like a robot talking to a developer, et cetera. And so that humanizing element made it be like, oh, I can trust this app to be given to my non-technical people. Yeah. And the Wufu support is so good that they're not going to bother me. Exactly. So Wufu got easily recommended by technical people all the time. So to back up, and and given I, I know like some of the startup school content coming out, um, let's talk about even just coming up with the idea for Wufu. I know mm. that's a big thing for people getting into startup school. Some people like sort of have an idea. Um, where did the idea come from? And then how did it evolve during YC? So before I get started, I just want to make it clear. If you don't have an idea or if you have a bunch of ideas, but you don't know what to pick, Startup School is going to be great for you. We've actually got lectures dedicated to that topic. And so I think that's going to be helpful. And then if you're working on an idea and you're like, I don't know if it's really working, mm-hmm. should I pivot? We've got a lecture for you as well. Uh, for us, um, we actually pitched like back in the day you could pitch multiple ideas it wasn't like a separate question for what other yeah. ideas you had you could put um uh, multiple Within applications the same application yeah something like that or okay. like or you can submit multiple and so okay. when we got accepted for an interview we had we had two ideas we had submitted and we had actually asked ahead of time we we're like oh we had submitted two ideas which one should we prepare and they had responded very quickly and they were like uh just prepare for both of them so we're like okay cool thanks no <laughs> uh, so we do all this work and we come into the room yeah and then the first idea they meet they meet they go no 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 we're not interested at all like they knew immediately when we like just described it like no we don't want to what was we, it it was an affiliate uh Link marketplace, basically. Yeah, okay. Not very interesting. Like, you know, there there are big businesses uh, doing that, but like, I'm glad we didn't go down that road. I don't think that would have been unsatisfying. And then this other one was not actually Wufu the way we described it. Yeah. We we called it a new type of content manager uh, with something we called reversible forms. So the idea was that like, oh, you know, the form that you fill in on the back end of WordPress. Uh, that's a form. And then the comments form is also a form. So mm-hmm. what if you made it so that forms could be like private or public? Mm-hmm. We called it reversible. We made all this new jargon. That's yeah. how we tried to describe it. It's a horrible way to describe right. the product. <laughs> and PG kind of looked at us immediately and was just like, kind of was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then it was like, I think you're building a form builder. Right. And we, of course, had already like researched a little bit of the market. We're like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. We don't want to build a form builder. We've seen the other products in the space. They're boring. They look terrible. That's not space we want to be. Content managers at that time were the hot thing. It was like movable type and WordPress. They were like blowing up. Yeah. We thought like they're doing interesting stuff in, in the product space. We wanted to be in there. And then what we didn't recognize until a little bit after that interview was like, oh, that's the whole point. Like that's the opportunity. All these people are bad in this space. Uh, and obviously they're being supported you know, there's enough people doing it, but like no one has really conquered it. Yep. And so for us, like that pivot happened in the middle of the interview and we were, we had not written a single line. We didn't even explain the idea very well, et cetera. And so it's actually one of the like big passions about why I'm doing startup school is like, I worry that people think that companies like mine back in the day cannot get into YC. And even though we constantly try to say is like, we do take single founders. We do take people without an idea. We mostly focus on the team. A lot of people just like hear what happens at demo day and they hear these teams with crazy traction. They think like, if I don't have that, how can I possibly get in? And the answer is like, you don't need that. And 
with startup school, I hopefully it will make people feel more comfortable that it's like, oh, there's a program that explicitly says <laughs> you can come here to get help with that. And then actually we're able to use that information, that relationship with those founders during startup school to actually say like, hey, yeah, we want to take you in. Actually, most of the startup school graduates that we took, many of them were like pre-traction. Mm-hmm. Many of them were had very, very little traction that we took. And some of them were pivoted after they got accepted into the batch, actually. Well, that's what I wanted to talk about. So like not to name names, but we're in the middle of the batch or, you know, the first third of the batch right now. People for the are, summer batch. For the summer batch. Yeah. People are restarting. They're completely pivoting, trying again. Like all the polish that people project onto YC companies that get in that are in the batch, it's not always true. Sometimes the pivot happens a week before demo day. Yeah. And then they still will be able to raise, et cetera. Because number one, most investors invest in teams. And number two, if you do the storytelling and if the idea is sound enough and makes sense, those two combined, the, a great team and an idea that is well thought out and told mm-hmm. really well to people, that's enough to get people excited. Because like what I am as an investor is trying to figure out is like, can I imagine a world where this team with this idea mm-hmm. is going to succeed? That's actually the baseline for like seed investment. It is not that like I have to have a crazy amount of proof that this is going to be $10 billion or I'm not interested in it all. Mm-hmm. That is not YC's model. Like we would like that. We would like teams to be, but we are humble and vulnerable enough. And part of the shotgun model is based on the fact that it's like, we actually can't accurately predict who's going to be a $10 billion company. Right. So we invest in 200 companies in a batch. Several hundred a year. Yeah. So you talked about Wufu as an unsexy idea. Do you have a mental model for finding unsexy mar- uh, markets or products that people can use? A mental model? Um, I don't think about it like that. Like, here's the thing. I If you were a really great product technical team yeah. and you're entering an unsexy space, uh... That's good because you're entering a space with like less competitors. But those who are like great product teams, but entering in like consumer spaces, it's like, my God, that is a, a crazy Mad Max arena yeah, <laughs> where a lot of good people are vying for that stuff. And it gets really, really difficult. And so to me, um, entering a tedious, boring space is about mindset, about like, what's your mission? And the best advice I'd got, I'd heard about this, it actually comes from... Uh, ben Chestnut, he's uh, the founder of MailChimp. And he says, is like, I don't like people who are obsessed with like only doing what they love. That's like a recipe for being unhappy. Like you're like, if I don't love it, I'm not going to do it. Because like, number one, like that's not practical oftentimes in life. And also uh, you kind of sound like a brat, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, so you won't do anything. You won't do the hard stuff. You won't do anything that's difficult, et cetera. He actually says the skill you most want is like figuring out how to love whatever it is that you do. And so what that is, is like, it doesn't matter if I'm building a form builder, I'm making a weird widget, or I'm writing a piece of like boring email copy or marketing or doing whatever to start. Like I have figured out a way to like make it my own and I will do the best version of it. Mm-hmm. A lot of Wufu's personality has come out of it. was like, oh, I have to make this like confirmation billing receipt. All right. I can do this the really boring, tedious way yeah. where I will hate it all the way through, or I can figure out, it's like, oh, where can I put some sparkle and magic in here? So therefore, it's like, I'm proud of it. Mm-hmm. And Rufu 
you easily could be like, oh, no one wants to make form building their life's work. But to me, I was like, oh, this is a body of work that I'm so proud of because like everything in it was something where like, oh, I put some attention to detail and at a fundamental level, it just worked right. Yeah. These problems are also like usually huge markets. <laughs> yeah, so like if you want to make money and you can like bring yourself to do that, like that's like a great uh, motivation. Yeah. And I think often, I mean, you've read Man's Search for Meaning, right? Like Victor Actually, Frankel. Oh yeah, it's great. Um, I mean, it's terribly sad, but it's great. <laughs> um, and it, this idea is core to it. Uh, but also the fact that, you know, like people love getting good at games full stop. And so getting, making the best form builder, that's huge. Uh, and then also I think it's helpful pe for people to just imagine what it is like to win whatever game they want to play and just play it out in their head. And then you can just keep pushing. It's actually a big part of the philosophy and religion and like, um, that deals with like mindfulness, mm -hmm. you know, like sweeping the temple. It is like you can do it in a way that is like not mindful, not present, or you can do it in a way where it's like, oh, I'm paying attention. I'm learning stuff about myself and the world and, and actually being there. And so, yeah, I don't know. Like I think founders who figure out how to be happy working on what sounds like not sexy, those people usually have the right mindset in their head about work, about how they think about stuff. And so, like, I get excited about yeah, those totally. Teams. Well, just I mean, just having a customer-driven mindset makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so shifting a little bit to slightly later stage, uh, Sivaraj Ganesh asks, "How do you know if you've achieved product market fit?" So for Wufu, what was the point? I don't think. Did you it, ever get there? I don't think there's any given point. Um, Okay, so I'll tell you about this. Rufu is such a different company than most because we only raised $118,000 for the whole life of the company. So eight, so back in 2006, YC was only giving $18,000, and then we only raised from two angels uh, $50,000 each. And that was it. And Rufu was a company that only had 10 employees when we got acquired mm -hmm. about five and a half years later. And we had done that on purpose. And we had profit sharing. So when we gave equity to the employee, like we didn't hire anybody for the first two years by choice. It was three of you. And it was just right. three of us. Yeah. Um, and then when we gave equity employees, we were like, we're not going to give you stock options. We're actually going to give you equity. But the result of that is that it's going to be really hard to get that equity. You have to really sort of earn it. Because by that time, we had de-risk de a lot of like the growth totally. mechanics of Wufu. Like the, the revenues were just basically almost doubling every year. Okay. And so with the profit sharing, my salary was actually doubling every year. We, the thing is, we couldn't think of any place to put the money that would help it grow faster or would make it better. That was like literally like how efficient we were. Huh. And we had talked to so many other companies. And actually, after we got acquired by SurveyMonkey, we actually were really relieved because we looked at all the other stuff that they tried and we were just like, yep. Didn't was, work. There's like nothing else. Like it's just, our business was the kind that's like, the market is so huge and it's just nice and steady. Mm. And so I believe there's a type of billion dollar company where it's like, if you can figure out how to do this craft and do this work for 10 years, no, it's, no. It, it's, it's, it's inevitable. And so increasing burn like crazy and spending a bunch of people I mean, on building a team. you could have done a ton of paid, paid marketing. You could have spent a ton of money on that. So Facebook was really brand new at yeah. the time. Twitter had just got it invented. So there wasn't too many. Google. Google, right. But no one's searching form builder. Uh, we did. We were successful at getting a lot of 
uh, SEO traffic. And yeah. The way we did that was we built a form gallery. And so every different type of form you could build, there was like a dedicated landing page. It's like, hey, you can have a contact form in like one second mm-hmm. and one click. So that was really su- successful for us, for people who were searching that way. Mm-hmm. There's no need to buy an ad for that. Um, and it was one of the things, it was a trade-off. Like, what do we want from the culture of our company? And I got to choose based on our growth rate and the, the mechanics of the company. And we had interviewed, like, again, our roots was with this blog to learn about all this stuff. So we we researched things like, what was the literature saying about best practices for management, hiring, et cetera. And so a lot of, and then we interviewed tons of other like entrepreneurs and asking them just like at various different stages of the company. And especially in the early days of like YC, mm-hmm. talking to tons of other founders. And we would find out, it was like, what made people happy and what made people not happy? And hiring like crazy was consistently <laughs> everyone was like when my company got to a certain stage and i had this many people around me yeah. that i didn't even know who they were i hated it and so for us it was like we're gonna do everything let's we not can do to, that yes yeah like let's not make it so that this management thing and bringing on people that we're not passionate and care about not going to be a part of it and so like that became a core mission is to make us efficient and the profit sharing helped re- reinforce that and then those values got helped everyone be on board for like why everyone should do customer support in the company Mm -hmm. because it's like hey you know if we have to bring on more people to do this stuff like that eats away at our own success eats away at the culture that we don't want to change too much etc so all of it was reinforcing um what was the question so yeah i was gonna say just sort of get back to the question yeah when do you know if you've achieved product market Ah, fit so as a result i feel like there's Never really been a clear definition for it, but the the ones that talk about like breakaway startup success, they say product market fit is one where it's like you feel out of control, like you're no longer driving the boat. I don't feel like we were ever at that point, but I would not say that we were not at product market fit. So that's like the weird thing. Like we were we were not a company that was going to have an inflection point that was going to grow to some right at exponential rate. Well, we were a company that was in charge of our own destiny and we were not trying to figure out where the new customer is going to come from or who's going to beat us, et cetera. And so it was a very different kind of mindset. It's like, I felt like we had product market fit, but it was controlled. Yeah. And so to me, it's like, it's just different. Like there's an argument that you make this, the path that we have. And that I have to talk to companies about this. Like you might have a growth pattern that's not going to justify venture capital. And we were really lucky to recognize that. And we did not give up extra equity to get money to try to see if like, are there other avenues of growth or channels mm-hmm. that would make that happen? And the result is all the founders had so much equity in the company and that our employees who got equity actually had equity in the company, not just like options and shares. They would have yeah, to pay or for. just a tiny fraction. And so when the exit happened, our exit like equivalent for us is something that would have been three times larger for some other company in terms of returns back to the founders, et cetera. So that's like a whole different thing that you can manipulate. And I think a lot of people don't talk about. Well, I mean, that's like very much related to what I was saying before. It's like, think about this game that you're about to enter into and what does it actually look like to win that game? And I think for many, many, many years, I think Wufu's returns were still like one of the top returns back for YC as a result. Yeah, dollar for dollar, yeah. Yes. Totally. Exactly. And so... That, that's something to keep in mind. And it is like a company like mine is considered a big win for YC also, but it requires discipline of the founders yeah. and also recognizes a different channel. That being said, 
my type of company is so rare, actually. This yeah. is not the company. This is not like it's a choice. It's actually not many companies have the luxury of being able to grow that. I felt like we were really lucky to have that path and to recognize it and not create a bunch of extra burn and give up extra equity. Many people who might have that be a path, they're like, oh, I gave up all this equity and all this, you know, and, and then I increased my burn that like, I don't have a chance to go back Definitely and do not. this other path. Definitely not. So that's, that's another angle of it. But most companies who are successful actually are ones that, oh, you figured out and there's a rocket ship there. Those are the ones you mostly hear about. But I would say like those are actually more common for YC than the ones who are like steady growth and eventually be, be big. Yeah. So I, would your advice then be just run the experiments incredibly cheaply? I think figure out? you should always be frugal. I think any partner at YC will say you should always be frugal. That's number one. Uh, number two, understand fully, number one, why you're giving up the equity and why you're increasing the burn. Those are two big sacrifices. And so you should have a very strong level of confidence that giving up those two things are actually going to result in growth. I think a lot of people will give them up prematurely mm -hmm. thinking it will result in growth. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens, it's usually a tragedy, almost always a tragedy that happens. And so th this was why like our, our biggest advice that's kind of ignored is treat every fundraise as if it's your last. People just think that's the point of this game, unfortunately. Yeah. So anyway, product market fit. I had a very different kind. It's an extremely rare kind that you normally don't hear about. The kind that you mostly hear about is ones where it's like, oh my God, we have something that's so good for the market is that we we can barely hold on and we have to hire like crazy, et cetera. And so you, if you have to ask the question, you definitely don't have it. That's for number sure. one. And number two... Um, Don't give up everything <laughs> to try to achieve it. Like, again, it's one of those things where, like, you should know kind of right away yeah. whether it's going to work or well, not. Well, they, they had a, an, a little addition to this question. Oh, okay. Which was, on the other hand, how do you know if your product just isn't even noticed yet? And so, I mean, I think you could lump this into the category of, like, do you have 100 people that love it? Um, but what would you say to that? Uh so there's two things, and actually you should refer to Don Caldwell's content. So he um, did a video on the YouTube about, um, I think, pivoting a little bit. And then also he actually did like a tweet um, storm about a bunch of ideas of how companies get locked into too, too much, like being really diligent. I actually think it's extremely difficult to know when to give up because there's no shortage of stories of founders who like they just kept at it and then finally something clicked right and there's there's others where there's plenty of stories where it's like we finally ch gave up and changed and then that thing worked like right away slack yes so to me i actually feel like there's no good answer yeah <laughs> quite honestly like this is where you need a little bit of luck and the question is like you kind of are actually asking your own self is like what are you going to be happy with yeah. Right. So the, if you are just like, man, I just want a company that like I'm proud of, et cetera, then there's a certain level of growth that you be, you can want. If your goal is like, I want a company that is going to be a fucking rocket ship, then yeah, you need to basically be like, all right, is it a rocket ship? Right. Is it a rocket ship? Is it a rocket ship? And then there's a certain point we, you want to say is like, well, it's not a rocket ship. And that point is usually before you run out of money. <laughs> and I would, I would recommend sure. is that you want, like when you start getting down to 
nine months yeah of runway you should start seriously asking yourself about like what would have to change definitively uh for me to know that this is a rocket ship yeah what would have to figure out um and then you'd like time box it because like once you run out of money it's game over and then the lower the money gets the the lower the leverage that you have to ask help from someone else to buy help buy more time well and, and you're just shrinking the amount of time you have to run experiments so you can't you're exactly. not finding anything out you're not learning yep. um they asked one more question that i think is also quite common for early stage founders people doing startup school how do you even gauge the size of a market oh um how do you gauge the size of the market? Usually that's a little bit of research. I feel like in whatever space that you're in, you're going to have a rough understanding of it, like basic demographics. There's tons of research studies on all these different industries. Usually companies themselves, especially big ones, are touting how big the market or what the opportunity is, et cetera. Yeah. So you, I feel like that's easy to find. I think more importantly, what you're trying to figure out is like, uh, and I talked about this in an early YouTube video, yep. is like understanding... Like, does my model even make sense? Is it is it even plausible that I can be, become a billion-dollar company? And what I talked about is you're just trying to figure out, it's like, oh, based on how much you charge or the average amount of revenue you're going to get from someone, how many customers do you have to have <laughs> to get to $100 million in revenue? Um, and I do this with all my companies. I actually had two that pivoted this batch after we ran through that exercise. They were like, oh, my company's like a really bad model. It's not going to work. Like I either because it's either I need to increase how much I'm charging, or I need a really great acquisition strategy to get at those numbers. Mm -hmm. And then once you have the number, the question is, does the market even support that? And as an investor, I'm usually thinking it's like, okay, if they need to capture more than ten percent of the market just to get to that hundred million dollar revenue, that's probably not plausible. Like, oh, yeah. I've, I've seen numbers where it's like, oh, we need to get like 100,000 customers. But then like the number of customers in the market is like 150,000 only. And therefore it's like, oh, that's going to not be plausible. <laughs> I mean, you see stuff all the time. It's like, well, if we get everyone in America, we're going to be a total hit. So you shouldn't do that. I actually yeah. think you always want to do this bottom up calculation. And then for consumer apps, there's, there's probably always going to be a lot of people. Um, the bigger part of that equation that you're focused on is like, how do I get at these like, Two, three hundred thousand people that's needed to make this consumer startup worth a billion dollars. Yeah. And so if you if your answer is I'm gonna pay for every single one of them, man, you now have to give up so much equity in your company to do that. So the ones that we get excited about, ones who figured out like, I figured out a trick for people to recommend me to do this for free or like have other people act as my salesman on my behalf. Mm-hmm. So for this last section, yeah. let's go into some hardcore startup school advice. Ooh. So a lot of people are going to churn. Fewer people than the average MOOC, way fewer, but people will churn. What kind of mentality should someone adopt to ensure like at least completion, but hopefully success in startup school? So for us, so at the end of the program, what we have people do uh, is apply to YC, YC. And then when you apply, you're also um, applying to get this $15,000 equity-free grant. So the most promising startups from startup school, um, we give out those grants. Uh, simultaneously, we look at those applications, also consider them for the, the YC core program as mm -hmm. well. So it's like a two-for-one in that application. Uh, the minimum requirements for applying <laughs> for that is you have to complete eight out of 10 weekly updates. So basically every week we send out a thing that we say like, hey, uh, how many users, 
uh, have you talked to and what have you learned or like how much revenue, like what is your main KPI? Like whether it's engagement or revenue, like how much have you done? And again, it, it, it's not that it has to go up every single time, but you have to at least submit the, the updates. Mm-hmm. If you don't submit the updates, you don't get considered for group office hours because you're not active, et cetera. So that's like, that's the minimum is like you spend 10 minutes a week right. writing an update about what you're doing on your startup and what progress that you've made. So that's like, you know, that's basic like the, requirement, the basic yeah. requirement. Yeah. And I would like to think that like, if you're thinking about your startup and for most people I know who think about their startup, it's like nonstop. This should be an easy thing to do. The reason people don't do that is because they're like the truth really fucking sucks. Yep. Um, and so it's a large thing that we actually do with our own YC companies is I have to get them to be like, you as an entrepreneur uh, have been born with like some kind of broken gene that makes you more optimistic than other people. But what that means is you're going to lie to yourself. I'm here to fix that gene. Like I'm a crisper. Yeah. And so I help <laughs> you look at the honest truth about where you really are at in your startup. And mm. so that update is like there to help you see that. When you're finally honest about like, oh, you know what? My KPI is revenue. And since I'm pre-launch, it's zero. <laughs> and then the next week it's zero again. Yeah, I got to change start, something. <laughs> I got to change something. Or yeah. I need to speed up, et cetera. And so yeah. like what you want is to look at startup school and be like, for this 10 weeks, mm-hmm. I'm going to go through these exercises. I'm going to ask these hard questions of myself and my co-founder. And this is why startup schools, I think, is also great for companies who are already working on a startup because it goes back to these first principles. And then be honest about those answers. That's number one. Number two, participate in the group sessions. So like every week, we're going to match you up with um, six to eight other people. Uh, on Thursday evenings is kind of what we figured out was the ideal time for everyone across all time zones. And you're going to talk about your startup. And actually, those group sessions are very simple. You actually are practicing talking about what you do. Uh, It's what we mostly do in YC is fixing your narrative and storytelling because people come in and they're so bad at talking about what they're doing. And because it's not clear, people can't understand. And if they can't understand, they can't get excited. And if they can't get excited, you can't grow and you can't recruit and you can't get people to invest, et cetera. So fixing that story is the most important part. And so we're giving you an opportunity to do that with lots of people. And actually, we have software that when you're in the video sessions and you're saying like, hi, my company is this. This is my one-liner. People will be able to now say to you, it's like, I understand mm-hmm. what you're building. I'm excited about the problem you're working on. And then are you the kind of team that like, I would want to work for. So getting understanding is like, how do you project and present yourself? Because mm. what, because those three things are a lot of what we're trying to evaluate. A lot of people I feel like I talk to you about their company, it's low energy, they're not passionate. And those aren't people that attract other people because anyone that's going to build a billion dollar company, they need to be able to attract other people mm-hmm. to, to this. And so I think startup school is also successful to the people who are committed to that process of like, I'm going to try to get real feedback and I'm going to practice talking about my company. I'm going to fix my narrative and get it to the end where people like hear what I'm talking about. They immediately get excited and that it's all, and it's so exciting and I do such a good job that people are, are attracted to me. Last question. A high percentage of these people uh, are solo founders. Say mm. they are looking for a co-founder. What would be your advice given it's a relatively short period of time on vetting co-founders? <sighs> Okay. Um, getting a co-founder is like getting married to someone. And yeah. it's probably like even way more intense. And um and, and then you and you and you don't have uh 
usually sex to relieve the tension or fi- fix a bunch of things or smooth things over. <laughs> or a different job. <laughs> exactly. so you don't yeah. have usually a chemical yeah. thing that's helping fix a lot of things that are problems. And so I actually think it's like, you're, you should treat it very similar to like, what would you do to get married? Like you don't immediately like talk to someone, figure out a bunch of characteristics and on the first date go like, let's get married. Yes. So what you're actually doing when you're valuing co-founders is you're dating. And the dating should be small. Number one is like, do you understand each other? Do you have complementary skills, right? Like, do you like just talking with them? Do you think that you would like to spend more time with them? So that's like the first question because you got to spend a whole lot of time. So that's that's like the big thing is like, oh, I would just practice that. Like, oh, I like discussing, talking, et cetera. The second stage would be is like, oh, okay. Do I, is there some kind of small thing that we can do for each other? Mm-hmm. I would start with small favors. Like, oh, I'll research this question and I'll get back to you. Or like, oh, I'll look at that or I'll send you some recommendations, et cetera. Like, how are they reliable in terms of exchanging small stuff? And then you move on to it's like, hey, maybe we'll try building something or maybe we'll try doing something, et cetera. And then you move on to like, all right, let's have a conversation about like, hey, do you want to work more long term? Do we want to like commit more resources to that? Mm -hmm. Like, I think you can time box everything and work your way up. And so the dating is super important. I think founders, single founders are unsuccessful when they are kind of desperate about it. Yep. That's the same problem in normal dating, yes. actually. Uh, the second thing is um, it can't be all take. It's like, oh, I have a great idea and I'm looking for a technical co-founder to do all the work. Uh, you have to be good at selling yourself on like what your contribution and what you're going to be able to do, yeah. et cetera, is. And if it's, if your contribution is non-technical, then like, you know, there's good examples of this. Alexos Hanian is my favorite example of a non-technical founder. He did everything else, right? He's just like, I'm going to smooth this over for you. Um, and that's something that can be really appealing to someone who just like, is like, I know I'm going to have to build this. What about, uh, what, given that you compare it to dating, dating multiple people in the beginning, that's totally fine. Startup school is allowed. Uh, yeah, I think you should probably have conversation with lots of people. Okay. Uh, like you, you never really uh, know. I feel like the only reason I did my startup is because I met my co-founders. I never thought about entrepreneurship. Like I was supposed to like get my MFA and teach art to hippies. Yeah. So like making money was the farthest thing from my mind. Yeah. And I would say like uh, college Kevin would like really punch myself in the in the face and call me a sellout uh, if he knew what I was doing now. Oh man. All right. Awesome. So, uh, startup school signups, um, are available where they're open at startupschool.org and registrations open until July 22nd. Awesome. All right. Thanks for coming in, man. Thanks, Craig. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.